Morning, Bethel. All right, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 4 of Colossians, this is the word of the Lord. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, Bethel. All right, so this morning um, we're going to bring our values series to a close. How many values do we have? Three. Three? Little cheat sheet right up there for you, visual cheat sheet. What are they? Gospel, community, and mission. Okay? So our values are a way to help keep us centered on the main things, keep the main things the main things. And so these three values flesh out how we fulfill or live out our purpose. So can you say our purpose statement? And if you need to cheat, you can just look in the top right corner of the front of the bulletin. To reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. Okay, so we, as Jesus said, we're the light of the world. The church, his people, we're supposed to be the light of the world. So if we don't shine with his light, if we don't reflect his glory and his goodness and his grace and his love and his kindness and his compassion, how's the world going to see him and come to know him? So no one lights a lamp and then hides it under a basket. And so God doesn't do that with us. He doesn't light his people, give us his light to just hide us under a basket. He does that so that we will shine with his glory, right? So if we say that we treasure Christ, first values the gospel, Christ is our greatest treasure. Like Paul says to me, um, he just counted everything as lost in view that surpassing value of knowing Christ as his Savior and Lord. And so if we treasure Christ, but then our lives if we say we treasure Christ, but then our lives actually display the fact that other things are more precious to us, then we're not going to reflect his worth. We're going to reflect the worth of whatever we actually love, whatever we actually are worshiping. That's what our lives are going to magnify instead of magnifying the worth of of God through Christ. So those values, these values, will shape then... If Christ is our greatest treasure, it's going to actually shape our relationships. If the cross isn't at the center and other things are at the center, it's going to shape how we do relationships and community because we're only going to want to do life with those who are aligned enough with what we actually value. You see? So the first one leads to the second one. The first one leads to the third one. Um, The cross isn't going to be enough to unite us if the cross isn't central if Christ isn't central. And if the cross isn't at the center, then, again, we're going to reflect the worth of whatever else we love. Mark talked about it um, as we were singing and some of the comments he made. We're going to talk about what we're most excited about. We're going to share what we love most and value most with the people in our lives. And so we'll talk about food and movies and TV and videos and work and money and gadgets and recipes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but we won't talk about Jesus if Jesus isn't central if he's not our greatest treasure. Usually don't have to spend too much time around somebody before you get an idea of what's most valuable to them. So you can see how important it is that the gospel is our precious treasure, central value, and the gospel shapes our relationships in our community, and the gospel shapes our mission. So I've said it before in the series, but I'll say it again. Um, Only if Jesus Christ and him crucified is central to us will our relationships and community display his worth in bright and winsome ways. And only if Jesus Christ and him crucified is central 
will we live our lives on mission with Jesus to share our greatest treasure with those around us? Okay? So you and I, we can't do everything. I think we're all kind of bombarded with way too much. But I hope you agree, if you're a Christian, that we must keep the gospel, community, and mission at the center of our lives. So this morning, we're looking at the last one, mission. Um, we focused this three-part series in the book of Colossians, so we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, to see the call to live on mission with Jesus, and it begins with prayer, actually. So before we talk to others about God, we need to talk to God on behalf of others, okay? So first point, continue steadfastly in prayer, verses 2 to 4. So look there with me if you're not already there. Colossians chapter 4, uh, verses 2 to 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So, Look at, two, look at verse 2 there again. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So this exhortation is, you know, to prayer is general. Hey, Colossians. Hey, church. Pray so that you can be faithful in walking with Christ. So this is a general call to prayer for their own lives, the stuff that he's called them to before this section, and certainly the stuff that he's going to call them to in this section. Um... And then verses 3 and 4 focus on that prayer for Paul and his ministry to preach the gospel as this pioneering missionary. But faithfulness and witness for both the Colossians and for Paul is what we're praying for. That's the main focus of these prayers, and we'll see that that's the case in the context as it follows. So in verse 2 there, continue steadfastly in prayer. That word translated steadfastly in verse 2 is the same word that's translated as devoted in the book of Acts several times. So the early disciples, 114, Acts 114, you don't have to turn there, but all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. And then Acts 242, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. So if we don't have many opportunities to share the gospel, or if we're actually afraid to take them when they do come, here's where we can start. Here's where we ought to start, is on our knees. So as Dick Lucas, one commentator, writes, he says, effective evangelism begins with persevering prayer. So a little heads up here this morning. It's going to be a little unique. Um, half of this message is going to come from some videos basically some testimonies, because um, this passage is pretty simple. We're going to be able to understand it, but the question is, are we going to actually know what it looks like and be inspired and motivated to just really wholeheartedly apply it? And I think testimonies of how God has worked in other people's lives can be really helpful and powerful to illustrate and to motivate us, okay? So um, these all come from two different years of the Together for the Gospel Conference, 2012 and 2014. Um, before some of the sessions, they would show some testimonies. Um, there's another one that we'll look at that just has to do with how some churches have been intentional in their missional orientation in their city. Um, so I'll give you a heads up when they're about to show up, but they're powerful. And listen to the role of prayer in evangelism in this first testimony. So Chad, if you want to cue that one up. There's one woman that I've been sharing the gospel with for a long time, over 25 years. Let's call her Mary. The way I started studying the Bible with Mary is awesome because it was such a God thing. We were just having a conversation over the death of someone and we found something that was a very clear 
gospel presentation and I read it and we started having a dialogue back and forth and she was asking questions and I found the Lord giving such boldness and courage to me and we had a wonderful conversation and it came to the point where she actually said, maybe we could study the Bible together. What has become apparent in studying the gospel is that it's a different gospel and so we're believing differently and she's uncomfortable with that. Her gospel is following the way of Jesus with his values and being willing to suffer to love other people, but it's very man-centered, not believing that Jesus was God's son and that he gave his life to rescue us from sin. She is thinking that Jesus is not the only way that sinners can be redeemed. She doesn't like to think that there's only one way to do anything, and she views that as as being divisive, and anything that divides and keeps her from being able to embrace everybody is viewed as an evil. And what I keep trying to emphasize is God has loved the world, and he has invited all to come and put their hope in Christ, but he's made this one way. I've been tempted to quit my evangelism with her and, and to give up. But every time I think about what the Lord has done in my life, it encourages me to press on in prayer, to persevere. Because I want her to be rescued. I want her to know the love of God in Christ. And I don't want her to stand on her merit when she meets the Lord. Sometimes I have doubted that I'm sharing it in a way that is helpful, but I also have been encouraged and comforted by God's word that says the natural man doesn't understand the things of God and because they're spiritually discerned. So I understand that even communicating clearly to her apart from God's work in her life, won't bear fruit, so I've taken courage that that um, I can keep praying for her and keep persevering. And I keep praying the Lord will give her eyes to see. My name is Eli, and I am unashamed of the gospel. So the theme that year was unashamed. And in some of the other videos, you have in one chair the person who shared, in the other chair the person who believed. And so that chair was empty. Um, so, you, <clears throat> so you can see why or how the gospel, value one, is empowering her in a persevering way to love her friend, um, not throw up her hands, not give up, and to keep praying. Um, so. And also, if we skip down, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Uh, here was this death, and she's loving her friend, and a door opens up for her to share the gospel. So again, just powerful illustration of what we're talking about here. But just notice that role of prayer in her witness. And even though she hasn't been successful, quote-unquote, she's been faithful, and she's still praying, and she's still sharing. So look back at verse 2. Um, it's interesting that being watchful and with thanksgiving are set alongside each other. Okay, so we are to be watchful and keep alert spiritually, constant vigilance. Prayer is driven by need, and we're desperately needy, and so are those around us. And so actually, a lot of the battle oftentimes is not losing touch with our need. Getting lulled to sleep is really what leads to prayerlessness. 
But the good news is that ultimately the battle is already won. We've got a God who's working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So we can be thankful. He's at work. He has answered prayer. He sees. He knows. He cares. He's able. He's willing. So we don't have to live out some kind of nervous vigilance, like nail-biting our way through, thinking it all depends on us, lest we slip up and kind of thwart God's plans. That would be giving way too much credit to the enemy and not enough credit to God. But it's also not thanksgiving without vigilance. It's good to hold these two together. The fact that the battle is the Lord's, that Jesus has already declared it is finished on the cross, does not mean that we can just kind of kick back and relax and you know, live like we're on spiritual vacation until heaven, just kind of floating down the lazy river of life. So vigilance, yes. Nail-biting, no. Thankfulness, yes. Laying down our weapons, no. You see, that, isn't that beautiful that those two are put together um, to kind of keep us from falling off the horse either side? Let's look at verses 3 and 4. At the same time, so praying generally for yourselves to live all this out, and then Paul asks for them to pray for him. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He asked for prayer that he would speak forth the mystery of Christ. What is that? What's the mystery of Christ? Well, mystery in the Bible doesn't refer to a secret that nobody can figure out. It actually refers to a truth or a reality that God has kept hidden but now has revealed. So look back at Colossians 1. Just flip back there to Colossians 1, 24 to 27. And you'll see he already explains there what the mystery is. Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. In other words, Christ's sacrifice is totally sufficient, but getting it to the people who need to hear it is going to be costly. So he's willing to fill up in his flesh. He's willing to pay the cost personally to get the gospel to other people who need to hear it. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in the Old Testament, you can understand that how is God going to satisfy his justice and his mercy? I mean, he set up this sacrificial system to kind of make atonement for our sins, but really does the blood of bulls and goats take away our sin? No. Like, how, how can he do this? How can a, the blood of a, of a lamb or a bull or a goat or whatever take away, like, David's sin of adultery? How can that actually cover it? Or how can God be both just and the justifier? How can he pardon guilty sinners? I mean, Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. How can God let off guilty cosmic criminals? How can he pardon them without payment, justice being due? Or how's God going to bless all the peoples of the world through Abraham? How's that going to happen? It's just one guy. And, and Jew and Gentile together, one people, how's that, how's that going to happen? Or if you go all the way back to the beginning in the garden, the first time the gospel is sounded, God is cursing Satan for tempting and seeking to deceive Eve. And in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. How's that going to happen? What does that even mean? You can imagine it's just so mysterious. But all that mystery has been revealed in and through Christ. 
He is the gospel mystery revealed. The cross alone is how God's justice and his mercy can be satisfied. So, real justice. We deserve the condemnation and punishment. God loved us so much that he would actually say, I'll take it for you. Substitutionary atonement. He's making atonement for our sins in our place. Incredible love. So God's mercy is satisfied. He can be merciful to us without just sweeping our sin under the rug, but upholding his justice, both justice and mercy satisfied. It's beautiful. The cross alone is how he can be both just and the justifier of the ungodly, people like you and me, sinners, all of us who repent and believe. It's in and through the, the, the cross alone, Christ alone, that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. This grace is not just for Jews only. It's for people from, he died for people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, and he died to make us all one in Christ, one family, one people, one in Christ. So it's also at the cross that Jesus, though it looked like weakness and defeat, that actually it was the power of God for salvation. Jesus stomped on Satan's head at the cross. Yeah, bruised at the heel, looked like defeat at the cross, but Satan's head was crushed. Jesus defanged him at the cross. And so this mystery has been revealed. It's all found in Christ. All the deity is dwelling in him. The fullness of deity dwells in Christ, as we looked at a couple weeks ago. So we have this great news to share. We have something to declare, all because of Jesus. And did you notice the Apostle Paul is asking for prayer that he would make the mystery of the gospel clear? Isn't that encouraging? The Apostle Paul said, hey, can you pray that I can make this clear? Like, I mean, we probably think he was, he was like, he put Ravi Zacharias to shame, you know, Mr. Apologist man, you know, that seems to have the answer to every question. I mean, Paul, you, like, you need help to make it clear? Doesn't that encourage you? Because oftentimes we don't open our mouths because we feel like, what if I don't know the answer? Or what if I just kind of like stumble through it, look stupid? Well, apostle asked for prayer, for clarity. How much more do we need that grace? And we can ask for it as well. Before we move on, look at the end of verse 3. Did you notice that he says it's on account of his preaching that he's in prison? If he would stop preaching, you can imagine, he was, he was in prison when he wrote this letter, and he was there because of preaching the gospel. So if he would stop preaching, maybe the doors of the prison would open up and he could be released. Like, hey, if you just shut up about this, you can go. Paul doesn't ask for prayer that the prison doors would open so that he could be set free. He asked for prayer that the doors of opportunity would open for him to tell more people about Jesus. He didn't ask for things to be easier. He asked for prayer that he would be faithful and clear. So Paul knew that prayer opens doors for the word and it opens our mouths to be able to declare that word clearly. But this is what we need to be praying for all of us for our evangelistic efforts here in Wilmington. So to give you a picture of what this can look like in a city, here's the second video on... um, that highlights a couple different churches and their missional witness. When we came into Atlanta, we wanted our success as far as church planning to be dictated by impact and not by numerical growth. We never wanted to base success on fruitfulness, but on faithfulness to what God has called us to do. We don't feel that God has called us to plant churches, but we do believe that the model that we see in Acts is, you know, we're called to plant the gospel that as Paul goes from town to town and he plants the gospel and then fruit springs up from that, then you see there's this order and structure that's brought to it. 
we became an independent church in October uh, 2012. Our goal is to reach out first generation of Hispanics. At the beginning, I didn't have a church, nothing. So what I'm gonna do in, a, in, a, in an office? Preparing the sermon, yeah, for whom? So we need to look for them. But the Lord has been so merciful, giving us people, and we thank God for that. When I first came to Castleview Baptist Church in 2008, I saw a group of people who were thankful for their salvation, certainly wanted other people to know of that salvation, but had wrongly thought of the church's programs as the primary, if not sole, means of providing that opportunity. Programs are like training wheels. They're helpful. But the goal in Christian maturity is to eventually take the training wheels off where you can ride on your own and not be so dependent upon the structure of programs to provide outlets and opportunities and to provide the content for conversations that you could otherwise better do on your own. I think a pastor, before he's a pastor, is a Christian. Part of what I need to be doing as a Christian is engaging in relationships with those around me of people who otherwise don't know Christ. Our church was right next door to a popular bakery and breakfast spot in Atlanta. Every day I would go there, buy a cup of coffee, and ask whoever I saw what their first names were. And then I started to sit and to work at the bar and to do work there and call folks by their name. It was kind of under six to eight months of uh, trying to do that over and over and over, and that led to just tons of gospel conversation. Folks from there would come next door to the, the church, and it all just came a part of, I think, a consistent presence in one place. One of the things that the Lord put me to do is to look for our neighbors, Latinos. So I have been a driver, I have been a moving guy, I have been a handyman guy. I used to drive some guys from here to Maryland. During the trip, okay, they are in my car. They will be listening uh, Christian music and they will be listening to me. Being a pastor, doing the labor of evangelist uh, for myself, for my people, for the non-converted people. It's all connected. Build friendships. Have relationships with people in a regular, repeatable manner that upon doing so, I can begin to get to know them and ask them questions and interact with them. With perhaps even the opportunity to, to study the Bible with them. I think it's an example to the people in the church, oh, that's what it looks like. And I think that connects for our people that encourages them to go do the same as well. Sometimes I think there's an apathy that exists for the souls of the folks that we come across. It's so easy to get so wrapped up in our own worlds and to think that successful Christianity is about how well I'm not doing certain things. I think when people get cold in their evangelism, it's an indication they're getting cold in their understanding of their own testimony, of their own relishing of the gospel. If you just go after evangelism straight on, you, sh you could have, you should have, if only you would have, people will acknowledge that they should and you'll get a short-term response. But that's like telling a child he should use vegetables. He knows principally it's true, but at the end of the day, he would prefer a Big Mac. For a Christian to be told they should have answered, they know it's true, but at the end of the day, they just prefer to go home and watch a television show or read a book. We tried intentionally and constantly to tell them, remember, we are not better than them. We have the same kind of heart 
has been transformed by God. So you fan the flames on the gospel. You fan the flames on the, on the mercy of the grace of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that will produce a renewed passion towards evangelism. Judge, remember how merciful God has been with us, and let's share the gospel. We don't need to shape the gospel uh, in, in any way, because the gospel is the gospel. Man, there's nothing that we have to do to this. We don't have to add on anything. We don't have to program our way into this. We share, the gospel bears fruit, and it forms a community of folks that come together. The gospel is for sinners, Christians and non-Christians. It's the hope of heaven. The gospel speaks to the deep universals of so many cultures. Seeing the faces of that diverse crowd just continues to reaffirm that man, there is a God that can and already has reached into any and every context to draw people for himself. So that's a great encouragement to us. Again, I think a really powerful testimony to see how if we're going to live this out, the gospel's got to be at the center. And also, really clear illustration of the combination of this passage of leadership living this way. So pray for me, pray for the other leaders here, and it's all of us. We all need to respond here, um, which is where it goes next. So I need to plant the gospel more here in my city, sowing the seed generously. You need to plant the gospel more here in the spheres of influence, the relationships the Lord's given you. We all need to plant the gospel more here. I mean, don't you want to just see that growth happen? I'm sorry, I didn't hear anybody. Is anybody? Don't you want to see that kind of growth happen? Yes. So that's where Paul goes next, that we all embrace this. So conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders in verses 5 and 6. So if verses 2, and, 2 to 4 is about prayer, talking to God on behalf of others, then verses 5 and 6 is about witness, talking to others on behalf of God. And this is one of the clearest places, apart from the Great Commission, you know, where Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, um, where all believers are commanded to be faithful witnesses. We can't say, well, that's not my gift. Like, this applies to all of us. We all need to take this seriously. So look at verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, or redeeming the time. That's where that phrase comes from, making the best use of the time. <clears throat> so listen, this is such a hope-giving passage, even, it might, even if it might get you out of your comfort zone. Listen, Paul knows we're not always going to know what this looks like to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. We might not be good at this. That's why he starts the letter out with the way, like praying the way that he prays. If you want to flip back there, look at Colossians 1, 9, and 10, and just see how it is like anticipating early on in prayer what Paul's going to call them to later on. So start a few words in here, Colossians 1, 9. We've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you see? If we're going to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, God knows we need help for that. And Paul prays for that help. And we can pray for that help. And God will answer so we are called to walk wisely toward those who are outside of the family of God, not because outside we're intolerant and narrow-minded and whatever. No, but because we want to draw more people in. We love being a part of the family of God. We love the fact that Jesus made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father, that we don't have to stand before God on our own merits, but we can stand 
clothed in the righteousness of Christ, atoned, all of our sin dealt with by him on the cross. So one of the ways that this wisdom can be expressed is by thinking about how we try to communicate Christ to other people. Like, we need to ditch the jargon. Like, do you ever... Have you ever brought a friend to church? All of a sudden, you have a new filter on your ears, and you go, huh, I bet that sounds like insanity to them. They probably think that's gobbledygook. Like, it's helpful because we can kind of get into our little bubble, just like if you get a bunch of IT people together, they can, you know, throw out all these little, you know, jargon phrases and acronyms and whatever, and somebody tries to listen to the outside that's not IT related, they're like, what in the world are you talking about? Okay, so jargon isn't all bad. Like, we need some words to kind of help us summarize things that are big and deep and wide, but if we're going to try to talk to somebody that's not initiated, make it understandable. Work to make it understandable. It also means we don't have some one canned formula for sharing the gospel, you know, like, I don't know, some, sometimes it can be so canned and mechanical and like, wait a second, isn't this a part of you? So we wisely get to know the person and seek to communicate the gospel in a way they can understand. I mean, we can't start in the same place with every person. Jesus didn't. Think about how different his approach was with the woman at the well than with Zacchaeus. Same gospel, different person. So Paul also says that we should make the best use of the time, redeeming the time, buying up the opportunities, making the best use for the sake of loving people wisely and sharing Christ with them because it's this is, this is what they really need. So you can see how if this mindset starts to sink in, this Colossians 4, 2 to 6 mindset starts to sink in in relation to our neighbors, our unsafe family members, or coworkers, or friends, or if you're on a sports team or whatever, you know, there, there are things that happen to people. You know, like that lady, it was a loved one that died, and do you, like... Do you think about death? Are you afraid of death? Do you have any hope beyond the grave? Like, what do you believe about that? You see, you're just, because you care about that person, and we do have hope, and we want to share that hope. Or certain holidays roll around, and there's opportunities. Or, you know, other things happen in people's lives, surgery, an accident. You can go and love on them. Why are you caring for me like this? It just sticks out. Well, because of how God's cared for me. Things happen in the news, and people are fearful and anxious, and you can talk about your hope there. So I think if it really does sink in, if we really start to feel the weight of this responsibility, we're going to start praying. But do you see how it could be like a really great cycle? Prayer leads to more faithful witness and, oh, I need help for this. Back to prayer. More effective witness. So Listen to another encouraging example of, of living these verses out. Uh, Billy and Caleb, this, this testimony. I met Billy a year ago, um, the first, uh, first day of my philosophy class. I noticed him because he stuck out. Um, he was asking very sincere and personal questions, and immediately I knew that he was looking for something more um, than just learning. Um, he was actually searching for truth. I had been reading books like Plato's Republic and um, Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. I was like bent on this pursuit of what's, what's the good, what's the highest good in life? And I thought that if I could know what the highest good is, then I could live a great life based on that. He was just freakishly smart. I'd never met anyone else my age who was so well-read in philosophy and so difficult to disentangle. Um, it almost felt sometimes that he was so smart that a lot of the philosophy was becoming a stumbling block. So I asked him if he wanted to read the Bible with me, and he said, sure. So we started reading through the Gospel of John together. I'm just going through and thinking about what the Bible says about Jesus, what it says about God, what it means to be Christian, and how one can be saved. And one weekend, he came along with us to a retreat with, uh, with a Christian group of students. I, I thought it was a little weird, um, but I, um, 
the main reason I, I wanted to go on this retreat was the skiing, because they were offering skiing that Saturday, and I was like, yeah, I want to ski. The passage that was preached that night was from Hosea, and the way it was presented was that, you know, God has given so much. God has bought us back. He has purchased us back when we didn't deserve it. I was just struck by how clear they were making the gospel presentation. Not only was it impacting me, but I could tell from looking at Billy that it was impacting him. Hearing that talk about his like scandalous love, it just broke my heart. That was, that was an amazing love. Like, that was the kind of love that I was trying to live up to and which I couldn't do. I, there was no way I could ever do it. He loved me. When Billy was talking to me afterwards, just crushed, I could tell that he was just broken. And Billy just looked at me and said, what can I do? And I just told him, Billy, what do you think you should do? You know, you're standing here at the foot of the cross looking up to Christ crucified. How can you respond? He just, he just said, yeah, you're right. And he, he bowed his head and just prayed. I didn't really know what to do, honestly. I thought, am I supposed to do something? How do I lead him through a prayer? I'd never led anyone through a prayer before. But I didn't have to. He just bowed his head and prayed quietly. And, and I was praying for him as he prayed. What I realized after that conference is, you know, the most important thing is not what you know but rather what you love in life and what you're, what, you, what you're serving in your life and who you're serving in life. And, uh, and at that moment, you know, because of Christ's great love for me, I loved Jesus and I wanted to serve him. And so I just entrusted my life to, to him. You know, after he had prayed, he looked up at me and said, I wanna go read my Bible. What should I read? So I, I directed him to 1 John. I thought that'd be a good place for him to start. Um, and off he went. I went back up to the room uh, where we were staying and sure enough, he's just in there like reading his Bible, like just crying <laughs> and just like circling all these words and just like reading through and being like, it all makes sense. It just all makes sense. He realized that all this time he'd been searching after knowledge and that that knowledge that he was seeking af after was coming from pride. He wanted to know these things because he wanted to be something when in reality, we're nothing. My name is Billy. I'm a Christian today because someone brought the gospel to me. Be unashamed. goes on to explain how we walk wisely toward outsiders. Um, literally here in verse 6, there's no second command. It doesn't literally say, let your speech. I mean, makes sense translation-wise to, to put it this way. But literally, it's walk wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Your speech, always gracious, seasoned with salt. So this is how we do this. Um, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You see there's this readiness here that is called for. So listen again to Dick Lucas. He says, there's never a time, according to Paul, when our responsibilities to the outsider, of verse 5, can be out of mind. Always we must be praying that the opportunities for the gospel to be preached to them will be given by God. Always we must gladly take those opportunities, however unfavorable our circumstances. Always we must use the fleeting moments for Christian response when people give us opportunities. And also, I think this is a helpful comment. He, he also says in this section, we go to the office to work, not to evangelize. But by being ready and willing to respond, the way is opened to a more natural approach to each day's opportunities. So, what does Paul instruct us about our speech here? It should be gracious and grace-filled. So, sometimes people want to pick a fight or just win an argument, okay? But we are interested in loving people with the truth, 
not jamming something down somebody's throat. So we will speak of grace graciously. But that doesn't mean that our speech should always be so peaceful and nice that it doesn't ever provoke or challenge or pique interest in other people. Like, we should give people food for thought. We should provide challenging, thought-provoking truth. Our speech should be salty in that sense. It should have some seasoning to it. So we should speak of these truths because they are so powerful and poignant. And if they are precious and just we savor them, then we're going to be able to communicate them in a way that is going to provoke thought and wet appetites. So again, the only way we're going to do all this with authenticity is by keeping Jesus and the gospel central day to day. Um, I know we're kind of getting short on time here. Um, so let's just do this. There's one more video, and I really want us to see it. Um, so we'll look at that and then draw things to a close, and then we've got an appropriate song to sing at the end. Um, met Colin when I was in the third grade, about 2005. Um, the Lord saved me. I noticed that he was changing. Things had changed in his life. He no longer wanted to hang out on the weekends and party. Me and my brother made fun of him. Other guys that we all used to hang with, we were making fun of him, saying, well, look, you know, he's going to church now, and he doesn't want to hang with us anymore. I would still try to um, reach out to them and spend time with them, um, but I think they kind of just uh, were more interested in um, the lifestyle that they were living. About that time is really when, um, you know, I just started smoking weed and um, I started drinking really heavy. Eventually, um, I was on probation uh, for a drug charge and I ended up violating that probation. I didn't go to court. So they set a warrant out for my arrest. His brother called me and asked if I was uh, willing to come and talk to Colin because he said Colin had um, been having a, a tough time and that things weren't, weren't too good with him, um, that he had been in some legal trouble. He had been involved with drugs, and, and he had just been going through, through some rough times. So I agreed to go. I was um, honestly a, a little nervous, just kind of worried about just the time that had passed where I hadn't seen him, that he wouldn't be interested in what I had to say. A part of me really didn't even want to talk to him. Didn't even want him to see me in the state that I was in. I, I took him outside, told him that I loved him, uh, told him that Jesus loved him, told him that I was here for him. Um, we both kind of got a little emotional. I just, I, I think he could sense that he was in a, a bad place as well. And the next day I got a phone call from his brother that said that he had, he had been arrested and that the bounty hunters did come and, and um, they locked him up. So during my time while I was in prison, my mom came and visited me. She's crying. And I'm like, mom, what's wrong? And she uh, takes her a while to answer me. And she says, it's Carol. And, I, and that's my wife's name. And she said, uh, she had a drug overdose, and she's dead. She killed herself. Uh, I started crying, and I just started asking God, why, why are you doing these terrible things to me? What, what have I done that you would take my wife from me, that you would put me in prison? I got together a care package, if you will, with a Bible and, a, and I think another CD and a book. I said that when he gets out, I'll, I'll be waiting for him. A year later, he gets out and um, he calls me and he says that he'd like to, to see me and he'd like to spend some time with me. So I, I invited him to the Bible study and said, I'd love to have you come over to a Bible study that I do every Monday. And I said, no pressure, you know, feel free to call me, I'll come pick you up. So he did, he called. We began to have conversations about uh, God and about, about sin. 
And I remember uh, sharing the gospel with him and he said to me, you know, he didn't feel like Christ could, that Christ could die for his sins. He said, you don't know the life that I've lived. You don't know what I've done. But Joan reassured me, he's like, no, he died for your sins, past, present, and future. It's like at that moment, um, God used what Joan was saying to me at that time to really just remove the scales from my eyes and just allow me to really see his grace in Christ. I just asked Joan, I said, I don't want to go back to living the life I was living, man. I don't want to. I really don't want to go back to living that life. What do I have to do? Joan said, you don't have to do anything but trust in Christ. Believe that Jesus has died, have died for your sins. And once you believe that, man, and you trust in Jesus, man, you can have eternal life. I thank God that he placed Julian in my life in that time to share the gospel with me. Now I'm going out and I'm telling people about Jesus. And I'm telling people about the good news of Christ because of what he's done in my life. And that I know that there is power in the gospel, power in the gospel to save. My name is Colin. And I'm a Christian today because somebody brought the gospel to me. Be unashamed. I've got a bunch of other practical application, but I'll just send it in an email this week, okay? And you can just read it on your own. I think instead we should sing, and then we should go out. We should sing about how mighty to save our God is, and then I think we should go out praying. Because don't you want to get in on this? Don't you want to see these kinds of opportunities opened up and be given the grace to make it clear and to watch God transform other people's lives? Father, we thank you that you demonstrate your great love and that while we were still sinners, you sent Jesus to die for us. Please, Lord, make that the treasure of our lives and I pray that we would want to share it and whatever obstacles get in the way of us sharing it, we would pray that you would tear them down so that we can walk faithfully, wisely with you, um, with those outside the family of God so that we can draw them in. In Jesus' name, amen.